My fellow Americans, are you tired of the new normal? Are you tired of the lies? Election fraud. You know the thing that the mainstream media and big tech says doesn't exist? It is time to end it. We must keep going. If you can't fly, run. If you can't run, walk. If you can't walk, crawl. But by all means, keep moving. Many of you are sitting here because you're wanting to know what the plan is. This has to be peaceful! We have the right to peacefully assemble! The solution has been in front of us all along. Ask God if you should step into the gap and become a part of the plan. The plan is simple. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. We are the plan. If you're waiting for others to do the work for you, you're going to be waiting a long time. We are Conservative Daily. Welcome back to another episode of Conservative Daily Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Oltman. You know, I've been, I've been told, <laughs> I've been told that I seek to understand that I look for truth and so we are going to have a show today that I'm going to bring you some truth. I'm going to bring you a different perspective. How's that? I'll start there. Um, our guest today, his name is Don Quarter, And Don lives in Russia. Don is an American. I want, to, I want you to know about it. He's a journalist. And he spent his entire life in the United States. He now lives in Russia. Now, this isn't a uh, Gavin Newsom video of everyone pick up, everyone here pick up and go to Russia. No, that's not what it is. It's truth. And I think it's important we get perspective. And I had some questions. I had some questions about, you know, what is really true about what goes on in Russia? What is really true about the people of Russia? What is really true about the heart and minds, the ethos, the culture of Russia? And I don't think we get that. I think a lot of the things that we get in the United States is filtered through uh, propaganda and an ideological bend that is designed for us to be separated, to be um, divided. And so I, I always, I've traveled all over the world. I've been in multiple, I've been in many nations, including Russia. And um, I think it's important for us to have those perspectives. So let's not waste any more time. Let's bring Don Quarter onto the show. Don, welcome to the show. Hi there, Joe. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So uh, tell everyone a little bit about yourself. You know, I, I asked you the question. I go, Quarter, that doesn't sound Russian. We, we were debating <laughs> it before. You came, bef before and, um, but you're not actually Russian. Oh, you are, but you're not. Well, yeah, it's interesting. There's, uh, there's a difference, actually, in the Russian language to describe this. Uh, someone who's a naturalized Russian is called Russianian, and who, someone who's ethnically Russian is called Ruski. I'm Russianian. I, I don't have any sort of Russian roots or anything like that. My father is Italian-American. My mom is Puerto Rican. I grew up in New Jersey in a town called East Brunswick. So uh, basically just a little bit about myself. I mean, I studied Russian language and literature in university. Uh, I, I also studied history and I was always very interested in geopolitics and the way the world worked and uh, politics in general. So after university, I just, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I thought I want an adventure and I'm going to go to Russia to improve my Russian language skills. 
And I ended up finding my way at Russia Today. They took me on as a correspondent. I said, I don't have any media experience. They're like, don't worry, we'll teach you just how to do it. And they did. Now I'm an anchor and a correspondent at Russia Today. I've been doing that for almost five years now, and I've been in Russia for five years. And uh, the longer I'm here, the less I want to leave. <laughs> well, so tell me about what life is like in Russia. What's, what's it like? Well, what's... I live in Moscow. Okay. I, I live in Moscow, so it's definitely, uh, you know, the center of commerce and wealth of the uh, of the country. It's where everything basically is happening. Um, of course, there's, you, there's stuff happening in other cities, but Moscow is the center. Um, what's life like? Uh, you know, it's, it's actually not that different from the way life is in the West in a lot of respects. I mean, they're, they're people just like us. Uh, it is it is a more conservative country, I would say. Um, just it, it kind of reminds me of socially how the United States was maybe like uh, in the in the 1980s, maybe before we had this like wave of wokeness in the United States, yeah. I would say. But uh, you know, it's just there's 24-hour delivery and everything <laughs> like in the West. Um, people are a little different, you know. Like there's there's something that I didn't even realize until I came to Russia, but Americans are very smiley. Uh, we like to smile a lot, even when, uh, you know, there's nothing really to smile about. And Russians just are not like that, you know? And that's why, that's why a lot, there's a perception that they're very serious, but in reality, they're not. They just uh, smile when they're feeling comfortable or when they're around people they like, or if they actually like something. So uh, they have a reputation for being cold, but uh, that's just on the exterior. So that, that's one thing. You, did you have any aha moments? Was there a time you said, hey, you know what, I'm going to go, I'm going to pick up and I'm going to go to Russia? Did you have any ahas, like aha moments when you got there? Like, I can't believe this, this is not what I was told. This is completely different. Uh, yeah. Yeah, there was, there was, because I studied Russian and the culture and everything, there were a lot of things I did know, but there were a lot of things I also didn't know. Like, um, for example, there's like uh, something everyone, every Russian knows is the, the kind of silly bureaucracy that you have to go through sometimes. Like there's a lot of uh, silly stuff, like for foreigners coming into the country, for example, there's this thing you, need, you get at the airport. It's a tiny piece of paper, easily lost, very thin, easily ripped. It's called the migration card. And basically you have to uh, turn it in back at the airport when you leave the country or you could get like a $500 fine. It's just a, it's just a piece of paper, okay? So um, I lost that piece of paper once. <laughs> and before, before, I came, before I became a Russian, I lost that piece of paper and I was sent through a five days long saga of looking up on the internet where to go, finding out that that place doesn't exist and the information's outdated, finally finding out where to go correctly but it's not open on wednesdays so i had to come back the next day and then they tell me no you can't come here you have to go over there all for that to happen and for me to get back to the airport and for them not to even check if i have a migration card oh my god so, <laughs> <laughs> <there's>, <laughs> it's just like sometimes it's a circus of bureaucracy but uh, from what I hear from Russians, it's gotten a lot better over the years. So, well, but you went through the process only to find out you didn't have to go through the process, and that it, it's, it's right. kind of, we face that here in the United States a lot, right? A lot. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. But in Russia, it's like being at the DMV. Yeah. Almost. I was like going to say it. All over the place sometimes. <laughs> 
or getting a copy of your birth certificate. That is a, a task all in right. itself. Um, right, right. <laughs> so, so I have, I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to start by asking you some, some questions, um, related to, um, Dugina, Daria, Dugina, Dugina. I, I said it wrong. Yeah. I wrote it down and I still said it wrong. Dugina. That's all right. Daria, she was uh, killed in a bombing. Yeah. Car bombing. And, um, I understand you went to, you went to her funeral. That That's correct. Yeah. Um, yep. She was young, vibrant. She not outspoken, very well um, versed in the arts. Uh, very sweet person mm -hmm. by all by all um, accounts and by the people that I've talked to that have known her and did know her well. They say that she was a beautiful person on the inside and the outside. Um, yeah. t t tell us what you know. Tell us what you know about that about the bombing, what they know about how it happened or and what you can tell us that we're not going to be able to get in the United States. Well, I also knew her personally, actually. Uh, she was not an acquaintance. She was not a very close friend, but uh, I saw quite a bit of her. You know, uh, you know, we, we used to hang out sometimes. We uh, met back when I was, uh, I'm pretty sure back when I was a political activist in, in university and she was active in political work and, you know, at that time, I, I thought Washington wasn't very nice to Russia, and we saw eye to eye on that. We became friends, and uh, we had been working together uh, as, as I guess you could say, colleagues for years after that. You know, so I've known her for a long time as well. And all of that stuff about uh, how, what a bright person she was, how nice she was, how dedicated she was to what she believed in, and the deep love she had for her homeland—all of that is completely true. It was tragic. Uh, when when I read in the news that she was killed and and burnt in a in a car bombing, you know, it's just something that I've uh, I've never felt before. To wake up one morning, I was at uh, my girlfriend's parents' house. We were going going. It was a Sunday morning. We were going to get ready to go barbecuing, and all of a sudden, I I, I open the news and I read that one of my friends is killed in a car bomb. It's on the front front page of the news. It's it's a really strange feeling, and. Um, after, after, of course, the Federal Security Services of Russia, the FSB, uh, determined that it was uh, the Ukrainian Secret Service, uh, this is something we all pretty much uh, had a feeling about, uh, but the, the confirmation was that much more uh, shocking, really. And, put, and uh, identifying this person as uh, Natalia Volk, a Ukrainian former member of Azov, the, the neo-Nazi Azov Battalion, um, uh, an, an agent of the Ukrainian security services. They found her car. She was, she came into the country with Donetsk People's Republic's plates. She was driving around Moscow with Kazakhstan plates, and she fled to Estonia with Ukrainian plates. Um, she was at the same uh, music festival, music literature festival, that Daria and her father were at on the, on the day that uh, she was killed by this car bomb. Uh, and so... And, and, you know, there's still a bit of controversy as to who was actually targeted in, in this attack. FSB says that they feel that uh, Daria was actually targeted because uh, this Natalia Volf, she was actually following her around. She even rented an apartment in the same building that Daria lived in. But at the same time, Daria on that night was driving the car that Alexander Dugan was supposed to leave the event from. They actually made a last 
minute decision that uh, Alexandra Dugan was going to take a different car going somewhere else. And she ended up taking that car that was owned by, by her father that had a bomb planted under the driver's side. So, yeah, I was at her funeral as well. Um, she, they had an unofficial funeral I was at as well. Um, and it was it was just really heartbreaking, not to not just to be at your friend's funeral, but to see uh, Alexander Dugan, who said, you know, a few words about uh, Daria's bright character and just what a good person she was. You know, a, a grown man breaking out crying, a grown man who's, who's daughter was just killed in a horrible terrorist attack and this man is also alexander dugan you know like a philosopher and very high profile guy you know crying and this is a really powerful thing to see um so yeah that's that's basically uh, every everything that i have to say about it um and and another thing is that i i, I just want to say that you know the, the reaction we've heard from western media from ukraine uh, I have I have my own take on it because they were they didn't respond immediately, right? Ukraine says it has nothing to do with this. They've been uh, laying the blame at some sort of organization that's supposedly called the uh, the National Republican Army, which is some sort of Russian partisan movement against Putin, pro Ukraine. But we nobody's ever heard of this organization before. It's like they made it out of thin air. There yeah. are other Ukrainian uh, reports that Putin had them killed. Or, or had Daria killed for some reason I, I have no idea why and the Western media has been largely silent about it uh, when it when it does say something about it obviously it just echoes what's in the Ukrainian media which we've been seeing since the beginning of this uh, special military operation and sanctions and everything but my my take on the situation what I think happened and obviously this is just speculation but I think that the Ukrainians carried out this attack without the approval of NATO, without the approval of Washington. And I, I'm based on their previous behavior. I think Ukraine, uh, the, the Kiev government, is a lot more wild and a lot more willing to take risks that could put a lot of people's lives in danger than even the West is. So I think that wasn't agreed upon in advance and, uh, and that caused a bit of like backdoor but behind the scenes friction between kiev and the west well you, you say between kiev and the west and obviously the u.s plays a great part in that but the u.s has their allies that they that they collude with i mean i'll say collude in a in a yeah. very general sense um mm -hmm. you know i got in a lot of trouble for coming out and saying that i stand with russia in this in this battle and i know a little bit more than most people and i, mm -hmm. I like to study uh, different cultures. I spent a lot of time in the Middle East and Africa. I had seen uh, Russia operate in certain areas, and and um, you know I've been to you know sixty five or seventy nations um, in my lifetime, and I've seen a lot. Ashwat Adabia. So I, I learned Arabic flying back and forth because I was in some places that, frankly, would have gotten me in trouble typically. So I wanted to know if I was going to get in trouble. <laughs> so I figured if I knew the language yeah. and they didn't know I knew the language, I'd be in good shape. Um, yeah, but. You know, there's a lot of bad things that have gone on in Ukraine tied to Donbass that go back years, seven, eight, now yeah. eight years in Donbass, where innocent yeah. lives were lost. And it, it never made sense to me what was happening in Ukraine. Do you think, and, and this is a loaded question, you don't even have to answer it if you don't want to, um, but do you think that uh, the U.S. Uh, 
Do you think the U.S. plays a part in creating what I consider a proxy war, that they're working through Ukraine in developing this war against Russia? This episode of Conservative Daily is brought to you by DCF Guns. They're not just a supporter and a partner of the show. They're an organization that is on the front line of promoting safe and responsible gun ownership. Along with being a staunch defender of the Second Amendment, they have a lot of different things inside of their three ranges and stores. So they have a gunsmith at every location. They have the ability to do massive amounts of training, uh, anything from beginners all the way up to uh, competitive shooting. Um, they're also the best gun store in Colorado. Uh, between a mar- massive arsenal of top-tier firearms, competitive pricing on ammunition, they're a go-to resource for newcomers and expert shooters alike. Memberships there start for as little as $25 a month and offer an arsenal of benefits beyond that, such as store-wide discounts and special access to training. Even better, what you're seeing right now is DCF Guns also has an e-commerce option, meaning you can take advantage of the awesome prices without leaving your home. Just visit dcfguns.co and start browsing. I do want to tell you that as a listener of conservative-daily.com, you get an additional 5% off everything in the store. You have to use discount code Joe. That's J-O-E. That's discount code Joe. Go to dcfguns.co and use discount code Joe. J-O-E. That's me. Or it's coffee, cup of Joe. Um, But you can go there and save an additional 5% off every single thing on the site. Um, As always, we'll keep the range hot and the deals hotter only at DCF Guns in Castle Rock and Colorado Springs and now online available to everyone across the entire country. 100 percent i think there's i think there's no doubt about it i think this uh, the the idea that's being pushed in the western media that russia just attacked its uh you know peace-loving neighbor who was minding its own business with this special military operation is so short-sighted and just nonsense this entire situation started in 2014 when the when the united states nato the european union sponsored this euromaidan coup they backed they backed them up and even uh there were leaked telephone calls between victoria newland who was then the if i'm not mistaken the under secretary of state uh and also the um, the u.s ambassador to ukraine at the time talking about who they wanted to see in power after this uh, after this revolution took place and this you know a lot of people who don't understand the, the history of ukraine don't understand that you know before that there the the country was still split in two really but it was split in two within a democratic system and once in a while a pro-western president would be elected and then a pro-russian president but the people who took advantage of the euromaidan uh, protests and i say take mm-hmm. advantage because at the beginning it was not uh, trying to become a coup d'etat it was agitated and taken over by literally neo-nazi groups armed neo-nazi groups uh, the 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 foremost one being right sector at the time, and this is this is established fact, um, and these these groups even received arms and weapons from the United States government, and especially Azov, which actually uh, in 2018 the, the, there was a law passed against helping uh, neo-Nazi groups like Azov in terms of money and and weapons. But the thing is, they got integrated into the uh, official military of Ukraine which does receive weapons and funding from the United States. So see, a a loophole was created to allow the United States to save face and continue funding these neo-Nazi groups that, that, you know, and and it's not just Azov either, because in the media, um, really, they like to focus on Azov. But there's, there are like 
so many. There's Azov, there's Right Sector, there's Kraken, there's IDAR. There are all these people, especially when Azov was uh, was liberated. And uh, you, you look at the pictures of the kind of the Ukrainians that were uh, coming out of there, the soldiers, not the civilians. You know, you, Zelensky was trying to act like there were a bunch of civilians there. No, there were armed men that had swastikas tattooed on their body. You know, these were these were neo-Nazis. And this is one of the things that Daria Dugana herself went to cover as a journalist. And this is one of the reasons why they wanted to kill her. Um, and, you know, of course, they might have been aiming for her father, but there is also reason to believe that they wanted to kill her, too, because she was there. She documented this stuff. And she, and because of that, she landed on uh, Ukraine's Miratvoretz list. Now, I don't know if you know what that is, but Miratvoretz is a, a list of enemies of the Ukrainian state, which has which has ties to Ukrainian security services. And it's unofficially, you know, considered basically a kill list. A lot of people think that uh, Dug uh, Daria Dugana, if she was the one being targeted, that it was because she was on this list, which she was put on, if I'm not mistaken, because of her work in Azov. And after she was killed uh, on this list, it says liquidated on her on her uh, profile, as if you know they they were they were encouraging people to kill the people on on this list. And I'm on that list also. I have to say. And I'll, I'll tell you why, going back to what you were talking about the last eight years uh, in, in Ukraine, after Euromaidan, the Ukrainian military launched what they called an anti-terror operation against Donbass. And they launched that because the people of Lugansk region that used to be uh, part of Ukraine and Donetsk region that used to be part of Ukraine, and let's not forget also Kharkov and Odessa, they were also, the, all these places declared independence because they didn't want to be part of this government that came to power on the backs of armed neo-Nazis. So because of that, the Ukrainian, the new Ukrainian government called them terrorists, launched an anti-terrorist operation. All, all sort of rebellion in Kharkov and Odessa was put down. And they tried to do the same thing with the, the newly proclaimed Lugansk and Donetsk People's Republics, and it was unsuccessful. And I'll tell you from my own experience, I became passionate about this and really uh, started to find interest in Russia because I was invited to come to Donbass as a student when I was still a student in 2017 to uh, something that the Lugansk Trade Union Federation there was organizing called the International Anti-Fascist Conference. And this was an attempt by the Lugansk Trade Union Federation to show foreigners the truth of what was going on here because the, the Ukrainian government and the Western uh, powers, they put them under like a, a media blockade. Nothing was getting out except for basically stuff on their YouTube channels that had like under a thousand subscribers. They were basically shadow banned. Right. And I went there for myself. I saw I saw with a bunch of other foreigners who were on this trip and I went back every year to to continue to see the situation there. And I've seen for myself, talked to people myself. I'm even making a documentary. So you're all going to be able to see the, the, the accounts, the, the first-hand accounts of people in Donbass who are living, they're not, mili they're not soldiers, they're living, just trying to live their normal lives as civilians. Their children are like running to and fro school under artillery bombardment constantly over the past eight years. Uh, people have been living in, in basements, in old Soviet uh, bomb shelters that were left after the, the fall of the Soviet Union. I even got a tour of one of those, but it's, it's going to be in the documentary. I'm doing it with 
Jeff Monson. He's a famous international MMA fighter. We went there uh, many times for this documentary. We did tons of interviews. It's just terrible, the, the stuff. And, and, and it's because the, on the Ukrainian side, for these past eight years, they've just called, they've just lumped everyone in Donbass into this terrorist separatist category. Doesn't matter if you have a gun. It doesn't matter if you're a kid. It, they were indiscriminately bombing them for these eight years. And there's even accounts of uh, Ukrainian snipers just shooting at civilians randomly because they get bored. You know, this is this is what people are talking about over there. And this has been going on for eight years. Thousands of people have died, and people wonder why you know this special military operation was launched after the the Minsk protocols were agreed upon in 2015. And the Ukrainians continually and continually violated it. And maybe it's even possible that uh, Zelensky's administration didn't even know the full extent to which they were violating it. Because there's even a video circulating around the internet when Zelensky went to the front to talk to the Azov battalion and, and you know, say, we thought we were going to take uh, the, the artillery away from the front and you're still bombing them. And as our battalion's just like, you know, we're not taking you seriously. He's just kind of laughing, you know, because he knows that the state in Ukraine, I mean, it's not that Zelensky's administration is not fascist. The problem is that they have no control over the armed fascists that brought it, the government to power. That's that's the biggest thing. So, I mean, so you talk about Zelensky not being a fascist, the government's not fascist. Then, then why can't talks... Are the, are, is the U.S. apparatus interfering with the ability to have talks to settle this down and to, to eliminate the special military operation? I mean, is it, isn't this a much easier uh, thing to, to identify if we can just say, okay, here's the Azov Battalion, here are the, the other separatist groups that are, that are these extremists, and we could just take them out? I mean, is that, is that just something that can't happen, or is it so intricately involved in the government apparatus in Ukraine that you can't figure out whose interests are being satisfied uh, through all this? Well, first I want to say, uh, just to clarify what I was saying before, there are a lot of fascists in the Ukrainian government as well. The main one, uh, the, the, the highest profile one that we saw recently was Ukraine's ambassador, former ambassador now, because he got too much negative attention, uh, to Germany. Uh, he was removed from power after he was defending publicly Stepan Bandera who was a Nazi collaborator and led the Ukrainian organization of, uh, of nationalists during the Second World War to fight the Soviets on the same side of the, as the Nazis. So that guy was openly defending Stepan Bandera. And because he got that kind of negative attention, Ukraine had to remove him from power. But this is something that a lot of people in West Ukraine believe. And they're saying publicly, and I mean, obviously the ones in power have to be a little bit quieter about it, but um, about the armed neo-Nazi groups specifically, this, the, problem, the problem with getting them under control is that these are the most fierce frontline stormtroopers, basically, for the Ukrainian military. Uh, one thing that was uh, particularly important to note back before the special military operation was that the Ukrainian military, the, the conscripts, basically, you know, the regular soldiers, not the uh, neo-Nazi militias, not the volunteer nationalist battalions, but the Ukrainian soldiers that were conscripted to fight Donbass, they had a real problem with desertion because there was not a will to fight among the population in Ukraine that was depoliticized, you know, that didn't really care about the politics of the situation. 
they felt like they were being sent to kill their countrymen and they didn't you know they didn't see any reason why and because of that uh we we saw large amounts of military equipment abandoned and taken by the Donetsk and Lugansk people's militias for you for their own use and that's one of the main reasons that they were able to fight off the Ukrainian military but these uh neo-nazi battalions they form the most dedicated most uh, you know um the the toughest brigades that ukraine that ukraine uses against uh, donbass and the russian military and they're even according to russia's uh, ministry of defense i even read that they're using them as um barrier battalions you know, for those for those of you who don't know what that is they're using them to uh put they're, they're using the neo-nazi battalions by pos positioning them behind the regular forces and if the regular forces retreat they either arrest them or shoot them you know, it's kind of like Enemy at the Gates in World War II, uh, like the, the movie about the, the, the NKVD, even though that's really uh, thrown over the top. In reality, actually, in World War II, the barrier troops mostly arrested people. Right. But, uh, but in Ukraine, it's, we're, we're seeing this kind of same situation, where if the, if they're, if the regular troops, troops retreat, these people who are conscripted to fight, let's not forget. Ukraine closed the borders after the special military operation and didn't let men leave. They force them to fight. And those people are, you know, don't always have the morale to fight the, Ru the Russian military for whatever reason. Maybe they think it's hopeless. Maybe they have sympathies with the Russians because a lot of people do. A lot of people have been against this, uh, uh, this Euromaidan coup d'etat. Again, like I said before, we're talking about, um, you know, people living in, because after Ukraine's anti-terrorist operation, uh, they, they took over basically three, uh, fourths of the actual territory of the Lugansk and Donetsk regions. But the rest of those regions voted to be independent. So they were essentially living under military occupation, not to mention Kharkov and Odessa, where they also uh, voted for independence, but they were taken over as well. So it's, you know, it's really complicated. And, and these people uh, in Donetsk and Lugansk, they overwhelmingly see themselves as Russian. This is because uh, Ukraine, you know, it, it was the, the borders the borders of Ukraine were not drawn the way they are today when right. Ukraine was actually created as a nation state. And this is something important to consider because a lot of Americans and people in the West see that what the media is saying about what Putin is saying about the Ukrainians. He's not saying they're not a people, you know, they're, they're saying, and they're not, they're not, he's not saying that the Ukrainian state never existed. He's saying that the Ukrainian nation state as it exists now was a creation in you know after the bolshevik revolution that was not that did not correspond exactly to the actual ethnicities living there because originally right. there was actually a separate, there was a separate country in the the now what we call donbas region donbas and odessa region. it was a separate yeah it was a separate republic and ukraine was its own thing but after uh the, you know a lot of stuff that happened during the civil war they were grouped into one and because they were part of the uh, you know, federal Soviet system, it was, it, it didn't create that much of a problem because essentially they, you know, Soviet Ukraine, Soviet Russia, their economies were integrated. But after the fall of the Soviet Union, obviously this created big problems. So, so let me, let me ask you a question about this because in the West, there's so much propaganda, so much chaos that's created around the reasons why that Russia wants to federalize all, if they had their way they go all the way through Europe and turn everything into Russia. <laughs> Um, that's not how this war started. That's not how this, this military operation, excuse me, started. 
Um, I mean, from from my understanding, and I, I read a lot about this because I want to understand it. I want to make sure that that uh, I understand the intricacies that we're not getting. Um, but th this started a lot because of the poking of the bear and kind of this encroachment that ke just kept happening over years related to NATO, did it not? Absolutely. I mean, like I said before, the Minsk protocols that were supposed to end this conflict uh, in 2015. Two, the most recent. Yeah. 2015. Yeah. Ever since then, Russia has, did not recognize the independence of Lugansk and Donetsk. They, they constantly were saying the Minsk protocols are the way we're going to solve this conflict. We, we don't want to uh, impede upon the territorial integrity of Ukraine. That's what they've constantly been saying. And then, and then I, and I've been covering uh, the run-up to this special military operation at, at Russia today. And I can tell you this, this was like, uh, this all started, um, this, the run-up to the special military operation. It was, it was an, it instigated by the West. This, it's the West that began this sort of campaign of hysteria in the media, followed by accusations from politicians saying we have anonymous intelligence sources that Russia is going to try to take Ukraine and blah, blah, blah. And there, was, there were even reports uh, I remember reading about that the uh, European intelligence agencies didn't know what the Americans were talking about because it was the CIA that was saying that uh, the the Americans or that the Russians were planning to attack Ukraine, and then all of a sudden, the the narrative changed, and all of a sudden, the European intelligence agencies got on board with that. Obviously, we don't know what happened with that, but it's very strange. And we saw attempt after attempt for the Russian government to deal with this diplomatically. Sergey Lavrov uh, was was at negotiations with uh, foreign with Western foreign ministers like day and night. I don't even think that guy slept. I remember, and, and I, was, I was the journalist uh, covering it all for RT, so I wasn't sleeping, so he must not have been sleeping either. And the, the, the demands that Russia, was that, that Russia was making were very simple. It was that NATO can, should not expand any farther east. It's threatening to the security, the national security of Russia. And they, NATO had promised informally even to not expand as far as it did already. They, they said they were not going to uh, expand any, any farther pa past the uh, Elbe River, if I remember correctly. And this was, this was, th these were discussions that were being had with Mikhail Gorbachev uh, during around the time of the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, and there are a bunch of other guarantees that were being made by the West to Russia as well. And they just did not want uh, NATO to continue expanding West. Uh, it was in violation as well uh, to a number of treaties of collective security between Russia and European countries, uh, where, where it's, it, it stipulates that countries can be part of whatever military alliance they want as long as it does not impede on the national security of another country. And this was clearly impeding on the national security of Russia. NATO officially calls itself a defensive alliance that doesn't have any enemies that don't want to hurt it. But obviously, this is complete nonsense. It's been growing, growing like a cancer since the fall of the USSR. And the last thing Russia needed was another one on, on its doorstep. It's already got Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, Poland. How many more NATO states does Russia need? Yeah, so, so let, let, let me... 
and I think that what you're talking about, most people don't have an understanding. They don't. They, we, we, I call it the TikTok culture, right? Everybody gets it off the the headline or the TikTok video, thirty seconds, and now they're an expert in it. I mean, they just, oh, I gotta put the flag up on my Facebook page. We look around, like everybody else is doing it. So the Western propaganda has been right. very, very successful in developing narratives that um, aren't true. They're just not true. But I want to ask you a question about something that blows my mind. And um, there was a guy that used to work for Conservative Daily. We got in a huge fight about this because I was like, listen, I'm going to stand with Russia on this. I've done too much research. And he's like, you can't stand with Russia. i got to stand with Ukraine. And it turned into a huge fight. <laughs> and uh, yeah. biolabs. Bio I mean, Russia, I mean, yeah. me, Ukraine is like the wild, wild west. Is it not? Is it? Is it just a, is it like the Balkans? Is it just a? Is it, is it lawless? It's becoming that way. <laughs> I mean, because, and it's, and it's actually because of the, uh, it's because of our government's actions, really, because that the biolabs you're talking about are just one aspect of it all. I mean, we could talk about the fact that, uh, you know, a, a seemingly never endless supply of weapons is making its way into Ukraine, uh, which, you know, I don't know if Ameri a lot of, if, most Americans know this, but the Ukrainian government has had a, a, a notorious reputation for corruption even way, way before this military operation began. And mm -hmm. so for them to expect these weapons not to fall into the hands of black marketeers and, or, or fall into the hands of ISIS or Al-Qaeda is, is crazy. I mean, the, ne the next major terrorist group we're going to have to deal with, I promise you, they're going to they're, they're have weapons that were sent to Ukraine during this conflict. The bio, the bio labs are another thing. I mean, uh, you know, Victoria Newland admitted to the existence of these, uh, and and the Pentagon as well. They they admitted to the existence of these U.S. funded bio labs because they were confronted with evidence they could not refute. Because once once the the Russian military started moving in um, deeper into uh, you know defending the People's Republics and moving into Ukrainian territory, they started finding these labs and documents that it were irrefutable proof of the kind of stuff that was going on there. And I don't know if you remember, but something I remember seeing, like just as the special military operation began, were uh, Ukrainian secret service agents burning papers and documents in mass. This is something we saw at the beginning of the special military operation. There were major cover-ups going on like no tomorrow. And I really believe that these biolabs were one of those things that they just weren't able to cover up. And so the, uh, you know, the Pentagon has admitted they exist. Victoria Newland has admitted they exist. But here's their spin on things. They say they're not biolabs. Uh, tired of feeling like someone's always watching on the Internet. Maybe advertisers know a little too much about you. IP Vanish is a solution for you. You can use IP Vanish on your, your computer, tablets, phones. You can use it on multiple devices at the same time without sacrificing speed. Um, they're for you, and, and here's the thing, it, it, it blocks advertisers, hackers, um, your ISP, third parties from getting access to information to you, uh, blocks people from getting access to your passwords. All the data is encrypted. And for our listeners, you can get 70% off their yearly plan for listeners with a 30-day money-back guarantee. It's like getting nine months for free. It's super easy to use. All you have to do is tap one button. A disclaimer, if you are using things, True Social, you have to turn off the VPN. If you are using things like uh, vMix, uh, Chevy apps, or things like that. So there are some things that does need a dedicated IP, um, and it recognizes that. So just keep that in mind. So go to ipvanish.com slash daily, use promo code daily, and save your 70% off.
but they're just biological, like innocent biological research labs that the U.S. has been funding. Sure. But it's really strange. But it's really strange for innocent bio labs to be having experiments connected to anthrax and cholera. You know, like deadly diseases. <laughs> That's what. Those are the experiments that were going on there. These are not the bio labs you're looking for. These are this this right. anthrax over here is it's naturally occurring inside of a test tube right. that just yeah. fell on the ground and had anthrax in it. it I, th I think there's a there's a large group of people that are um, uh, infected with a disease that might have come out of Ukraine on the west side. We call it stupidity, uh, but. <laughs> And and you're from you're from the West. You're from the United States. You know what I'm talking about, right? Uh, we wish Darwin yeah. would have taken out Dar would have taken out more people, right? Just sorry, <laughs> it, it's kind of a real <laughs> thing. It, it's not just the bio labs. It's it's the it's the narrative that's been created that I think is is becoming polarizing because we don't get access to this information in the United States. So I'm going to take you back a couple right. years prior to you going to Russia. And that was in 2016 when the Steele dossier became a real thing. And it stated that mm -hmm. you know, Russia interfered with the election. Since then, it's been debunked. Is there anything that yeah. you can shed light on out of Russia that would, or that, that from a perspective, from the Russian people's perspective, on whether or not there was any truth to any sort of Russian interference in the elections in 2016 or 2020, for that matter, I guess? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I was even here uh, when when that stuff was going down as well. I just started my career as a journalist, and everyone here was like, "What?" <laughs> like they they just thought it was crazy. I mean, there was no reason for the, the for Russia to interfere in the American elections. To and 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 you know, Trump wasn't even like entirely pro Russia or anything. No, you know, he was softer than than Biden, for example, but. It's just, I mean, people just here saw it as nonsense, like a, a sort of attempt to stir up fear uh, to accomplish their own political purposes, basically. Well, and I, and I think a large part, it was to create a distrust. It, it almost feels like they, they do everything in advance to create a distrust or create another Cold War with Russia. So they have to heat it yeah. up somewhere, you know, put the little fires in places where they think that you know, over time it will build into a bonfire. Um, but that was right. found to be debunked, and now we're on the edge of this war, and obviously the United States is spent sending billions of dollars, tens of billions of dollars. I think it's now approaching almost $60 billion to Ukraine. Yeah. Don, how much of that money do you think actually made it to, to even, regardless of what happened, how much of that, of that do you think actually even made it to the offensive of that $60 billion? <laughs> I have I have no idea, and that's the biggest problem. I mean, I really think it's likely that that a small fraction of it did. But imagine, like again, we're talking about Ukrainian government, notoriously corrupt, notoriously corrupt, uh, and we're we're throwing over fifty billion dollars at it. It's like, and and you know, it, it's. I mean, I think about it as. An American taxpayer, you know, I mean, I, I'm exempted from taxes because I, I pay Russian taxes to the Russian government here, but I still have to um, declare my taxes. My parents pay taxes. I paid taxes before. And I just think about, you know, I became obsessed with this when I found out that over $50 billion were, was, was sent to Ukraine. And I was just, I, I was just thinking about 
you know, what, what that's even going to mean for the future as well. I mean, we're looking at a, a, a defense budget next year of somewhere between $840 billion and probably $870 billion. And when you, when you put that into perspective, that means that over half of everyone's, every, over half of every taxpayer, uh, over, over half of every taxpayer's federal taxes is going to war. And most of it is going just into the pockets of the military industrial complex. You know, the people like uh, uh, that are creating the weapons for you to, to be sent to Ukraine and also to fill up the armories that are now left empty because of how much has been sent to Ukraine in the United States. They're the ones making billions, trillions of dollars off of this stuff. And like, I don't understand why most Americans would even be, how, how any of that would be in their best interest at all. You know? well, do you do you wonder why if people in the United States aren't standing up and saying, hey, we've had enough? I mean, 52 cents on every dollar goes to, and, and again, I'm talking to you from the American perspective, your parents are here. Um, t tell me, are your, are your parents living a luxury life based on what's happening in the United States? Are they, or are they feeling this inflationary uh, consequences of all the bad decisions that have been made by our government in the United States? Oh, they're, they're of course feeling it. I mean, my, my mom works as a, an assistant in school and my dad's a pensioner. So of course they're feeling it. I mean, like they, they live in a typical American suburb that requires a car to get around. There's no sort of public transport. So these gas prices are basically crippling them uh, on top of the rising prices of everything else. Because of course we're looking at record inflation uh, rates as well. Uh, so it's, it's absolutely insane. I mean, my parents uh, are, you know, they, they tell me they're, they're lucky that they have my perspective as well because they can get uh, the same amount of information from Russia through me as they get from television. And they themselves have come to the conclusion that this is all just completely ridiculous. Like, why are we helping these, 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 this Ukrainian government? Why are we helping these neo-Nazis? It's just crazy how much money is being thrown at that. And for what? what? So we can close the nuclear war. And I, and I think that's a, that's, that's a real consequence that we're facing right now. We're facing a consequence right now of escalated conflict. I don't think that the, the, the Russian leadership is stupid, that, that what's happening in Ukraine is a direct correlation to special interests tied to Joe Biden and Hunter Biden. What kind of conversation are people having in Russia about that Hunter Biden, Joe Biden, the big guy in Ukraine, and how that influences what Zelensky and his, his crew have done? Well, in the, with the people I've talked to, uh, that subject hasn't come up very much because, uh, as as I understand, as someone who's, uh, you know, I have one foot in the Russian media sphere, another foot in the Western mainstream media sphere, that that all got a lot more attention in the West than it actually got in Russia. Uh, but I talk to my uncle a lot, who is really into politics and everything, and he's always asking asking similar questions like that. Uh, so to me, yeah, I mean, it's clear. Obviously, there's some sort of interest. Uh, in the Biden family in connection to Ukraine because of that, because you know that if, um, you know, some pro-Russian government came to power in Ukraine, or even even if uh, just, you know, Ukraine, the, the current Kiev regime didn't have con complete control over that country, that's going to mean problems for those business interests there. Well, and in, and, in, and despite everything that's going on in Kiev, talk about that specifically and what Zelensky is doing, the uh, Ukrainian parliament just voted themselves a 70% raise. Right. 
that goes back to the corruption, right? What, what, where are they getting that money from? The American taxpayer. <laughs> Why? These are the same. These are the same people who, and and this isn't even. Uh, these are the same people that are basically turning Donetsk into a minefield. This is another thing I wanted to talk about. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't mention before. But these people that are giving themselves a raise, getting tens of billions of dollars from hardworking Americans, they're they're launching banned anti-personnel mines, internationally banned anti-personnel mines at the, the capital. That was my next nice question. <laughs> so I'm glad yeah. you brought it up. That's not getting any media attention. These mines that are commonly being referred to as pedal mines because they're as small as, you know, like uh, pedals from a, from a tree or from a, from a flower, they're, they're internationally banned. Why? And also Kiev said that it had destroyed all of them a while ago. But why are they banned? Because these pedal mines are not intended to kill people. They're intended to to like create horrific wounds on people. They're intended to blow your leg off but keep you alive, blow your arm off but keep you alive. They're intended to make humans suffer, and that's why they've been uh, banned by international uh, by international law connecting to connected to war. And they're dro dropping these things on civilian populated areas, specifically the, the capital of the Donetsk People's Republic. There already there have been scores of civilians acci accidentally walking by it and getting their foot blown off. Uh, kids think they're toys and they blow up in their face. I mean, this is happening every day. And uh, they're, they're being launched in cluster bombs on uh, over these civilian areas. This is this is completely not not allowed uh, according to the rules of war. And these and these are this is the Ukrainian military that's doing this military, military operations. Right, right. This is the Ukrainian military, one hundred percent. And they're dropping this into civilian controlled area or civilian uh, saturated areas, and and it's causing right. it's causing chaos in essence. Right. It, and and this is and to be honest, this is like uh, not even a surprising thing really because for the past eight years, as we were talking about before. Ukraine's been waging this kind of war of attrition against not the military in Donbass, but the people of Donbass, trying to make them as miserable as possible, trying to make them as fearful as possible so that they one day say, I give up, let's go to Ukraine, I want this madness to end. There's even Ukrainian war propaganda that was dropped into Donetsk and Lugansk in 2014 and 2015 that they have in the museums there that I that I. Uh, that I saw with my very own eyes when I was at the international anti-fascist conferences that they organized there. And these, this Ukrainian war propaganda that they were dropping uh, on civilian areas, they, they, were basically, they were basically saying, if you want clean water, if you want your electricity back, then you should come back to Ukraine because that's the only way you're going to get it. Like blackmailing people, basically. It's, it, that, that's the kind of uh, approach that the Ukrainian military has been using with the Donbass people, just trying to grind them down so that they lose the will to fight. But what they don't, but what they don't understand about these people, and uh, uh, something I understand about them because I've got a lot of friends there and I've been there many times, is that these are tough people, the people of Donetsk and Lugansk. They will, they will not surrender. They're they caring. They're extremely caring, but they're extremely tough. Exactly. Exactly. They they really remind me of the kind of uh, like the, the kind of fighting spirit that that the Soviets had against the Nazis in World War Two. 
you yeah. know, and they are caring as well. They will get they're They're really similar to the kind of stereotype of uh, people who live in the Russian countryside. They would they will give you the shirts off their backs if, if it could mean that you would have a good impression of them in, in, in terms of how they're hosting you where you are. You know, they're very kind people. And Ukraine is just using the wrong approach with them. They're not gonna. They're not gonna be bullied into submission. So what? What? Um, what? What? What's? What? Do, what is you? What are you most afraid of? I mean, you're a, you're a dual citizen. You have parents that are in in uh, your parents are in, and your family is in America, right? You've left. You have dual citizenship in both places. You're a consummate anti. You describe yourself, which which I I love, um, mm-hmm. is that you are an anti-socialist, anti-Marxist, right? You are, you, I'm trying to find it while I'm sitting here going through your, because you described it very well. And I was like, this guy, before you came on, um, what are you afraid of? What are you, we, in the United States, we face, we, we, we face Antifa, which first started in Eastern Europe, um, which, you know, I'm going to tell you this is not your opinion, this is mine, but they are the exact thing they say they're fighting against. They are the fascists. They are the people that are pushing this, this communist Marxist ideology. But as we get closer and closer to the heating of this, of this war by, by proxy between the United States and Russia, you know, what, what are you most fearful of and what are, what are people in Russia talking about um, of possible escalations? Uh, well, Joe, actually, I think uh, we might disagree a little bit here, but I, I'm, I'm not an anti-Marxist. I'm not an anti-socialist. I actually am uh, myself uh, a socialist. But before, but I, I am a lot different from the socialists that uh, you're talking about. I have to say, like, uh, you know, the Communist Party, for example, of the Russian Federation, it's the second largest party in Russia. And they are not, they're like com- a completely different entity than what you're talking about in the West. Okay. I don't approve of uh, kind of like, uh, you know, woke culture and the, okay. what I consider to be the, the, the left that supports the imperialist policies of the Democratic Party. You know, I don't, I don't agree with that. And, uh, you know, so actually, in a sense, you know, the, the, ten- the, the tendency that I come from has a lot of overlap with uh, conservatives in the United States. Uh, but the, the, kind of, um, the kind of thing we're seeing from Antifa, and, and this, this goes into what I'm saying as well, because when we look at the left in the United States and in Europe, we, if, we, if we look at Antifa and all these uh, you know, quote unquote socialist groups, they're actually supporting Ukraine. And they're, they're calling Russia fascist. Right. That, is, that is the most incredible thing. Russia is not a fascist country. Putin is not a fascist, but he's conservative. Does that mean he's a fascist? No, but there are people that he's fighting that literally have swastikas on them, and they're, they, they uphold the, the nationalist, Ukrainian nationalist legacy that was formed by Nazi collaborators in World War II. And those are the people that groups like Antifa and these sort of, well, I call them... Um, I call them basically fake leftists. I mean, right. that's that, that's what they are. Uh, they're supporting actual neo-Nazis, and they don't even understand. They don't even understand that they are. And we've seen a lot of the people volunteering uh, for for the Ukrainian side uh, from the West. A lot of them are these kind of socialist types that 
somehow warped uh, idea that they're doing the same thing that people did back in the Spanish Civil War. And they're going to Ukraine, they're volunteering for the Ukrainian Armed Forces, and they're really realizing that it's nothing they expected. Because these people are not fighting fascists. And a lot of times, you know, we could, there's plenty of stuff on the internet about this. These people are being used as cannon fodder, you so, know, these inter international volunteers. So I wanted to bring this up, and, and, I, and I, you've, you jumped right into it, because actually you describe yourself as an avid anti-imperialist. Uh, but the, yeah. the meaning behind it, you call yourself a socialist, I, I want to point this out. Because the meaning across the board for what socialism or socialist means in the United States versus in Russia are completely different. They're, they're, they're ideologically opposed. And th yeah. this is where the, the war of words has created confusion uh, in the minds of young people specifically in the United States because you have a, I'm going to just call it an imperialistic viewpoint. And this, this is going to throw people off because we create nameplates for everyone in the United States. Everyone. Right. Right? Oh, my gosh. Right. You're a homophobe. You're a racist. You're a Marxist. You're, and, and we don't even understand what those words mean. We haven't read anything on them. We haven't done any deep dive on what it means for, for any of those. But we create a brand new ideology, a brand new kind of pathway. And then these young people just follow it blindly off the cliff. Right. And I remember the Antifa movement starting in Germany, starting in those areas of Eastern Europe, and growing. So I was there. I was there, you know, 15 years ago. And I, I remember what we're seeing happen in the streets of the, of, of the United States or did in 2020. That happened. That originated. They, they tested that. The test bed for that was in Eastern Europe. And right. then they said, hey, we got this good. We're going to go over to the United States now. and We're going to train everybody up on this. And, you know, you're the savior right. trying to, you know, create equity. Um, and frankly, they've done the opposite. Right. I mean, what you're talking about right now, uh, this this uh, synthetic left that I call it in, in the West, it was really a cre it was an anti-Soviet creation, actually, because when we look at the organizations that, uh, you know, came that, that started getting the wheels moving uh, in, in overthrowing the Soviet Union, the first one that comes to mind for people that know this period of history is in Poland, Solidarity, Solidarity Trade Union. This was not a right wing organization. This was an organization that called itself socialist, and they were a trade union federation. But in the end, they ended up they ended up being against the socialism that uh, the that the Soviet Union stood for, and ended up supporting a restoration of this aggressive, you know, nationalist Poland that exists today. And that's why you know exactly what you're saying is right. I mean, the Russian Communist Party. Actually, I, I really think that the Russian Communist Party was actually the first political entity in Russia to start putting the idea of a special military operation on the table. And this is like mind-blowing for Western socialists, for Western uh, social democrats, whatever they want to call themselves, But because they're all against the special military operation. But they're too concerned with things that, don't have, that have no connection to working people's lives. When in, when in Russia, the Communist Party of the Russian Federation was looking at the situation in Donbass, saying these are our working people being tortured by the Ukrainian military that is con that is filled with neo-Nazis. We have to recognize the, the independence of the People's Republics of Donetsk and Lugansk and offer them active aid. This was something that the uh, General Secretary of the Russian Communist Party said far before Putin made this decision to launch the special military operation. 
And throughout the, the whole military operation, the Communist Party has supported it. I, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe Western leftists don't understand that. But if they did, I'm sure it would blow their mind. <laughs> well, well it, what would blow their mind more is the connection between conservatism and taking care of your right. people. These are our working class people. So we've used words to confuse everyone. It's, it's, no, it's no wonder that only 27% of the people in the United States graduate from high school proficient in anything, and less than 50% right. that go to university graduate proficient in anything. So it, right. it, it is, it is uh, we could go on for hours talking about it. Matter of fact, we're going to do a segment on this specifically and breaking down the war of words. Like, what does it mean to be a socialist? I want to know what your, what your ideals are, how those ideals carry through to what they consider to be socialists in the United States. I'm a Christian conservative. Well, does that make mm -hmm. me a socialist in Russia? So there's, there's some... Good. <laughs> and, 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 you know, I remember going and spending a lot of time in Africa. And I was in, I think, 23 or 24 uh, nations in Africa, maybe a few more. Um, and understanding the, the geopolitical environment and how influence from China, because China's all over. China and Russia are both all over Africa, right? And the United States is all over it. But, but the efficiency rates of Russian enterprise and Chinese enterprise is probably 10 times that of, of U.S. enterprise. They just can't get anything done there. Yeah. Right? And I think that the, yeah. all the open promises that have been made, I think that the U.S. has made a lot of promises to many nations around the world and has never fulfilled them. Like, I'm going to give you $100 million of support, and it never shows up. Right? People sit around for yeah. three, five, ten years uh, waiting for the boat to come, and it just never comes. Um, so, so Yeah. And also... A lot of a lot of countries in Africa are understanding that cooperation with the Western countries, especially the United States, is just going to lead to debt debt dependence on the IMF or the World Bank. With China and Russia, it, it, you know, it's based on on a lot more cooperation that's not putting these countries into basically debt slavery to Russia or China. You know. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Well, I got to tell you, Don, we're out of time. We're at the end of the hour. I'm going to give you the final word. But I'm glad that you crashed the party at the very end with something that's going to get people in the U.S. to think, people that are listening to think, um, because it, we don't – everything here is about – I need to wrap it in 15 seconds. I, I play for this football team. You play for that football team. I'm going to beat the heck out of them. Yeah. We hate them. It, it really is a, a very polarizing environment where people are put in different categories with a lack of understanding and a lack of education while we're always spewing that we have more education. Yeah. Well, uh, the way I see it is that, you know, real socialists around the world, and especially the ones that are in power in socialist countries, see the main threat as imperialism to peace around the world. And that imperialism, unfortunately, is being led by our government in the United States. So that's, that's uh, what I want to say. But I, I, I'd be happy to come back on your show and talk about that. That's a really interesting subject. Yeah, well... I tell you what, I do appreciate Now, I have to tell you this. Um, I am a Christian conservative. I end every show with a prayer, so I'm going to pray for you, if that's okay. Right. And um, Yeah, that's, that's good. And uh, I, I, don't, I don't know if we told you that beforehand, but too bad I get to pray for you anyway. Are you a Christian? Are you, right. are you, I'm not do you believe? Okay, all right. 
All right, and then we'll, we'll, uh, I'll let you go, but stick around because after the show ends, I do want to have a quick conversation with you afterwards. But uh, I do want to thank you for giving us your time. I want to thank you for your commitment to truth. Uh, and I, I frankly yeah. am just fascinated that some of the things that you brought up are things that I've read about and have never heard spoken uh, by the Western media or frankly by any of the people that I talk to related to what the uh, geopolitical environment is in, in Ukraine. So I do appreciate that. Thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate it as well. All right. I'm going to pray for you. Father God, thank you for the opportunity we have today to have Don on the show. Uh, thank you for his courage and being able to come on, come on and speak truth. Thank you for uh, the work that he does in media. Father, thank you for thank you for the opportunity to have perspective, to be able to talk about different perspectives and uh, teach people what is truly happening or what is you know the perspective of the people of Russia specifically. Father, Please help us that we can see through propaganda. Help us that we can have discernment, that we can dig a little bit deeper than those 15-second or 30-second videos, that we can look further than what the mainstream media tries to tell us is truth. Father, help us that we may all seek truth. Father, I would ask you to put a, a hedge of protection around Don. He is on a list in Ukraine, um, a list that you know brags about killing those that stand against or stand up in opposition to the stories being told, the propaganda being pushed. Father, I would ask you to put a, a hedge of protection around him to protect his health, to protect his well-being. Father, I would ask you to guard his heart and guard his mind, to stand with him, help him to pursue truth at all costs. And Father, help him to be a leader where he is. Help him to have an effectual voice where others can hear what's really happening in Russia. Help those to look and explore some of the writings and things that he's put out there, that Don's put out there that, are, that can give people a perspective to want to learn more, to scratch more of the surface and learn for themselves. Father, please, please help the audience that they may, um, they just may look further into these ideological differences and the confusion that's created there. I know that that will blow most people's mind. Father, I ask all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Stay frosty, brother. In other words, keep your head on a swivel. And um, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. And by the way, I crack jokes all the time. If you've ever seen my show, I... I I'm probably the most authentic person you'll see out there. Um, sometimes I say stuff and do stuff that I probably shouldn't do, but that's why the West media uh, loves I, me. I had a great time. I thought you were very charismatic. It was nice All meeting right. you too. Nice meeting you. Don Quarter, thanks for coming on. Blow your mind a little bit. So Donald sees himself as an avid anti-imperialist. It's a really important. And also 21st century Marxist Leninist. And you would go, oh my gosh, Joe, what have you done to me? Look, I'm a Christian conservative, but I know what it means to be conservative. I know what it means. We often talk about the words and the meanings and the things that people have turned into or bent for evil means. So they can create chaos. And typically all of that chaos those people are what I call useful idiots. 
I, I don't think that Hillary Clinton or uh, Barack Obama or Joe Biden, they, they, if you were to ask them a question, if you were to ask them a question, a simple question, like what is, what are we fighting for? What do I stand for? They couldn't answer the question because it's all about money and power. And, and frankly, that leads you back to imperialism. We call it elitist environment in the United States. It has killed and hurt more people in the United States and across the world than I care to talk about. It leads to a lack of, of accountability. It leads to lawlessness. And those are the things that we're dealing with today, where they can do whatever they want, act with impunity, and there are no consequences. Those are the things we should be fighting against. This was an amazing interview. There's so many more questions that I have. I wanted to give you a perspective from someone who is in Russia, but also someone that was, it, is American, who went to school in America, spent most of his years in America, studied Russian literature, studied Russian history, studied the people of Russia, and then went there. And it's completely different than what everybody said it, says it is. So I just want you to dig in, find perspective, find truth, and then become an ambassador of truth. Have conversations with people. Look into what's happening in Donbass. We will definitely make sure the documentary that Don creates, that we actually push out so that you can get a different perspective. I want you to look at what is true. Because the only way we get back to a society where we can you know, gain more control of our community, get rid of this nonsense that's happening, this, this woke culture, that can lead to nothing but chaos, nothing but degradation of our society, and a moral and ethical decline that, that frankly, we're, we're, we're having trouble clawing back from. So, fight for it. I'll see you guys tomorrow at 10 a.m. God bless you all. Until then, I'll see you tomorrow.